finish. Well, good morning, and um, let's, let's take a moment of silent prayer. It's also an opportunity to confess any sins that we need to confess. The, the morning is young, um, so hopefully you've been uh, keeping a short account with the Lord, but it's also an opportunity to confess any sins and to return to fellowship with the Lord. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to study your word. We ask that you challenge us by it and enlighten us by your truth, that we may be changed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been studying Isaiah's prayer. The, it's a very impassioned prayer in the book of Isaiah. It began in chapter 63, verse 15. And he's praying, asking, petitioning the Lord to act. Today, the prophet will complete his prayer. And our passage is chapter 64, verses 8 through 12. But I'll start with verses 6 and 7, just by way of background. Verse 6 of chapter 64 reads like this. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. This is an open acknowledgement of wrongdoing by the prophet. And notice the first person singular plural. Excuse me, the, the, the first person plural. Us, we. He says in verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. You have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. The prophet is confessing on his behalf and on behalf of the righteous remnant. These are words of contrition. Confession is always an act of humility. It's an acknowledgement of our brokenness before a holy God and that's what the prophet is doing he is confessing the sin of the group and he's including himself in it the sin of the righteous remnant that's just by way of context and background our passage today begins in verse 8 through verse 12 let me read the entirety of it but now O Lord you are our father we are the clay and you are our potter and all of us are the work of your hand Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all of our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Here the prophet is pleading with God to relent. To relent of his discipline and to restore Israel. Verse 8 in a little more detail. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Here the prophet continues to speak on behalf of the righteous remnant. And he says, God, although we've offended you by our rebellion, we're still yours. We still belong to you. And the prophet uses two images to describe the identity, because identity does matter. 
Uh, you hear people talking about this, my identity, identity. Identity does matter. And without God, we are identified by our sin. Now, what the prophet is describing here is Israel's identity with God. And so he uses two images. He uses the image of a relationship between a father and a child, between a father and children. And then the second image is the symbol or the, the picture of a potter with his clay, a potter with the pot that he is fashioning out of his clay. Let me talk about each of those images. When Isaiah uses the word father, he doesn't use it the way our 21st century uses the term father, right? I mean, we have a definition of father that has been colored by our culture, right? It's a, it's a politically correct definition. It's kind of a gender-neutral definition. And so you'd hear a definition like this in our culture that would use the word father. It'd be the male parent who loves the child, who the child can rely upon, and who's a good caregiver, a good protector, a good provider for the child. You see, that description is kind of generic. All you have to do is change the first line of it and change it as a, the female parent, and everything in that description would fit the mother or the father in our modern cultural gender-neutral d- definition. Our gender-neutral, the, the culture's gender-neutral view of father versus mother because the culture's intent is to blur if not reverse God's created order and so God's design for fatherhood clearly includes all those things I just listed right loving the child a a father who can be relied upon by the child a father who's a good caregiver a good provider a good protector a parent who does all those things Clearly, God's design for fatherhood includes all those things, no question. But it includes at least three more things that the culture omits, excludes from the definition of father. Item number one is God's design for a father is that the father is the authority in the home, the ultimate authority in the home, of course, below and subservient to God. But God's design is that the male parent which is to say the father, is the ultimate authority in the home. Of course, both parents are involved in leadership in the home. But in the end, it's the dad who is the final authority under God, of course. Paul talks about this in the context of church elders. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, Paul says, He, the he there is the elder, or the elder candidate. The elder must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Aspect number one of God's design for fatherhood that is omitted and shunned by the culture is that the father is to be the authority in the home, the ultimate authority in the home, other uh, subservient to God, subject to God, of course. Aspect number two is that God's design for a father is that the father is responsible for the teaching and the correction of children as i said before both parents are involved in that of course but in the end it's the father's ultimate responsibility on that the human father's 
responsibility. Deuteronomy 6, 7, you shall teach them diligently. The you there is in the masculine. It's the singular masculine. You, fathers. Moses says, you, fathers, shall teach them diligently, shall teach the, the things of God, the precepts of God, diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Each of the yous in the verse are in the masculine singular. They're directed to fathers. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. He who withholds his rod hates his son. The his is a his. There's no confusion about the his. There's no gender dysphoria here. The his means the father. The father who withholds, <coughs> excuse me, who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. A father's responsibility to teach and correct children is so important, it's so critical, that God himself compares his own functions, his own behavior towards humanity as a father, as a father who corrects, as a father who teaches. Remember Hebrews 12, verse 5, you have for, the writer of Hebrews says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And now the writer of Hebrews quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges, which is to say he whips, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The question demands a, well, of course. Of course, a father disciplines a son. Of course, because the father love, a human father loves his son. Of course, a human father corrects and teaches his son because a human father loves his son, is supposed to. The reason fathers don't teach and, and discipline and correct their children is because they don't love them enough to teach them the ways of God. But this role of a father, of a human father, that, who teaches and corrects his children, which is the responsibility of the human father, both parents, but ultimately the father, is so important that God himself compares his own role, his own function with humanity to a father like that. The third design that our culture shuns, that I don't want you to forget when you see the word father that the prophet is using in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. What I don't want you to forget is God's design for a father is to be, for a human father I'm talking about, is to be the protector and the provider for his children. Again, both parents are obviously involved in that process, but in the end it is the human father who has the responsibility to be the protector and the provider for his family. Again, a father's role in doing this is so important that God compares himself to a human father who protects and provides for his own. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path. That's protection. That's provision. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is another way of saying Israel. Psalm 68, verse 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. In other words, God functions as a father 
as if to orphans. Deuteronomy 1.31, in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son, in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. Moses describes God as a father who carries his son in his arms, who protects his son who provides for his son. The reason the country is falling apart, the reason the culture is falling apart is because parents have have abandoned their role. And most importantly, in the end, it's because fathers have abandoned their role, their responsibilities. The responsibility of a human father is critical. And so when you see the term father in verse 8 of chapter 64 of Isaiah, don't think of a politically correct definition of fatherhood. Think of God's design for fatherhood, including the protection and the provision of his own. This is what Isaiah is doing. He's claiming God's promise to protect and provide for Israel. He wants Yahweh to restore his children to the land of promise, and Isaiah knows that the only way for this to happen is if Israel submits to God. This is what takes us to the second image. Right? The image of a potter with his clay. What does that image communicate in terms of the, the clay's relationship with the potter? The clay is in complete, absolute submission to the authority and to the will of the potter. The potter moves the clay to the left. The potter moves the clay to the right. The potter moves the clay up. The potter moves the clay down. The clay is in complete, absolute obedience to the Father. And this is why the prophet says, we are like the clay and you're the potter. We submit to you. He recognizes that there has been rebellion and rejection of God, but here he says, we are completely compliant in your hands and in your will. Then look at verse 9. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people Do not be angry beyond measure. The Hebrew here is difficult to translate the phrase when it comes to the phrase beyond measure. It's the Hebrew word ad ma'od, which which means lasting in power or strength or lasting for a long time. One of the ways where you can tell where the the original language, whether that's, that's Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, is difficult to translate is when you compare different Bibles. So different Bibles, a number of different Bibles, translate this differently. The NASB, which I'm reading from, and the NIV translated as, do not be angry beyond measure. God, don't be angry beyond measure. That's the way the NASB and the NIV translate it. NET translated as, don't be too angry. ESV, the English Standard Version, translate this, do not, be not so terribly angry. Those all kind of sound similar, but I think they're all lacking. There's a concern with all of those translations because all of those translations kind of suggest that Isaiah is appealing to God for God to not overstep his bounds, for God to not act in a manner that is too much anger, too much anger, right? It suggests as if as if Isaiah is praying to God, no, God, don't forget there are limits to appropriate anger. 
Remember, remember the, the scripture when it talks of us, Paul says, be angry without sinning. It's okay to be angry, but you're not supposed to sin. And all of these translations kind of suggest that Isaiah is saying to God, remember, it's okay to be angry, but don't go beyond what is proper. In other words, don't do wrong. I think Alec Macher is right when he points out the gist of this Hebrew phrase. The gist goes like this. It's Isaiah saying, do not let us feel the full weight of your anger. That's really what Isaiah is praying. He's pleading with God for God to not unleash the full measure, the full breadth of his rage. Rage that is due to a rebellious Israel. Look at this phrase, nor remember iniquity forever. The prophet is claiming God's promise that God forgives the repentant. God loves to forgive. He loves to forgive the one who repents. All all Isaiah is doing here is claiming the promises that God has already given in the book. He's claiming the promises that he's already received earlier in the book. Isaiah 44, verse 22, God says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Return, there is the Hebrew word which we've studied on Wednesday night, the Hebrew word which happens over a thousand times in the Hebrew Scriptures, shuv, which means to turn back. It's a word of repentance. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God loves to pardon. He loves to forgive the repentant, those who submit to him. This is why Isaiah in verse 9 says, Behold, look now. What the prophet is is asking God to do is the reverse of verse 7. Remember in verse 7, it says God has hidden his face, but then we get to verse 9 and the prophet says, Look, when you see a verb like this, a a, um, it's a, it's a, a command of entreaty. It's a, it's a request, number one. And number two, it's a request not that God would simply look and say, there they are, but look with favor. That's what is baked into this word, look, or in the, in the, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, remember. When someone says, when, when David says to God, remember me, it doesn't mean that God, that, that David's concern is concerned that God's going to forget him. It, it is, it is a way of David saying, act in my favor. That's what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying, look, look upon us. Look upon us with your mercy. Look upon us with your grace because we are your people, he says. You see that phrase, your people, in, in uh, verse 9? The Jews, of course, are the chosen people of God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now Isaiah, if you kind of read the passion in this prayer, it's as if Isaiah said, it doesn't feel like we're your people, God. It just doesn't feel that way because you're imposing your anger and your judgment upon us. It's the same way that we would view Israel in the year 2020. It doesn't seem like the Jews are God's people, right? They've endured so much persecution, so much suffering over the last 2,000 years and even before that. But things are not as they seem. doesn't matter 
the way things appear. It doesn't matter the way things seem. What matters is the Word of God, the promises of God. And so Isaiah is calling back to the promises of God. He's recalling them, and he's claiming them before God. He says, God, we're your people. It's not as if Isaiah thinks God's forgotten it. What Isaiah is doing is taking a promise from the Word of God, and he's claiming it and relying upon it. He's asking for God's mercy, knowing that, is, that, that the mercy of God is undeserved for Israel. Then the prophet identifies the pathetic condition that the nation is in. Look at verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. This is poetry. Not poetry of, not rhythm of rhyme, roses are red, violets are blue. This is poetry of rhythm of thought. The prophet is saying the same thing in this verse over and over, just with different words, with different images, with different pictures. It's this image that he is saying in different ways that Judah and all her cities are a wasteland, not just the smaller cities, but the capital itself, the holy city of God, Jerusalem. Verse 11, our holy and beautiful house, well, I guess I I read both of those, our holy and beautiful house, that reference there is the beautiful and glorious temple that Solomon had built centuries before. It is now burned to the ground. The sacred golden objects of the temple, they've been stolen. They've been looted by the Babylonian soldiers. This is unimaginable, right? The people can't even approach the temple. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holy once a year. Anybody else goes in there, they die instantly. But God allows the pagan soldiers of the Babylonians to raid and loot the temple. They go into the Holy of Holies and they take the Ark of the Covenant, the golden object. They go into the holy place and they take the the, the candelabra, the, the, the menorah, the great menorah. They take all of the golden objects. They take the, the golden altar of incense. They take the golden utensils. They raid and loot everything. This is, a, this is a, an, a, a picture that is so troubling to the Jewish mind. And so he's appealing. The prophet is appealing to God. And that's why in verse 10 he says, Your holy cities are destroyed. Verse 11, The house where our fathers praised you has been burned. Don't miss the prophetic time marker here. You see in verse 11, this phrase, our fathers. We read the scripture way too fast. Notice the phrase, our fathers. And then think of the prophecies that are happening in the book. The phrase, our fathers, is a prophetic jewel. My responsibility is to take you into the mine and to point out that there's a jewel there and there's a ruby there and there's a topaz there and there's a gold seam right there. My responsibility is to take you into the mine and point out the jewels. And this is a jewel of jewels. Do you see it? Our fathers. Do you understand the prophetic significance of that? This phrase communicates the sovereignty of God. It communicates the omnipotence of God. Do you see it? 
our fathers. Here's what's happened. God made prophecies, and these prophecies are being fulfilled. The people who are speaking our fathers cannot be alive when Isaiah is speaking. The people who say, our fathers worshipped in this house, worshipped you in this house, they cannot be alive when Isaiah is speaking. Because they're saying that the house has been burned, that the temple has been burned. And so they're referring to an earlier generation. They can't be the people who are alive when Isaiah is prophesying. This is a huge, huge point. Isaiah's ministry is over by roughly 680 B.C. The temple doesn't get burned until 586 B.C., almost a century later. So Isaiah is speaking on behalf of a future generation, of future generations, Jews who are alive a century or more later, the righteous remnant who live within the 70-year exile, right? who live within the period from when the temple was burned, 586 B.C., 100 years after Isaiah speaks, how does he know that the temple is going to be burned? But by the supernatural revelation of God, the prophecy that God told him. We'll see the prophecy in a moment. The, the generations who are saying our fathers, our ancestors, are at least two generations later than when Isaiah is speaking. Because the generations that say our fathers, they live in the 70-year time period, the 70-year exile, from 586 B.C. to 515 B.C. 586 B.C., the temple is destroyed. So they've got to be speaking after that. It's got to be a generation that lives at, at or after 586 B.C. when the temple is burned by the Babylonians and looted and destroyed and sacked by the Babylonians. But they can't be speaking any earlier than 515 B.C., Because the temple is reconstructed in 515 B.C. So it's a window. It's a window of the 70-year exile. All of this is baked into this phrase. Our fathers. Here's what prophecy shows you. Prophecy shows you that God is omnipotent. And that God is sovereign. He makes promises and He moves events to ensure that His promise is fulfilled. That's what's happening here. We're going to see the prophecy here in a moment. Isaiah is describing a time where Judah will be destroyed, where it will be a a wasteland. And God made this prophecy to Isaiah decades earlier. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, remember that's when God called Isaiah into the ministry. He calls Isaiah to be a prophet and to proclaim his word to Israel. Yet at the same time that he calls Isaiah to prophesy and to teach, he says, no one's going to listen to you. You're going to be my prophet, and I'm going to call you to proclaim my majestic word to the people, and guess what everybody's going to (sighs) do? Big yawn. No one's going to be interested. Actually, it's going to be worse than a yawn. They're going to respond with antagonism. Look at Isaiah chapter 60, verse 10. God says to Isaiah, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. God is saying, I I instruct you. I 
direct you to go out and teach my word, but they will reject it. And they're not just going to reject it kind of, sort of. They're not going to reject it mildly. They're going to stick their fingers in their ears and cover their eyes because they don't want it. They're going to reject it wholeheartedly. This is a very discouraging message, right? The the messenger of God who is given his message to go give it to his people is then told by God, no one's going to listen. This is discouraging. And so Isaiah responds with, well, how long are they not going to listen? Look at verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11. Until cities are just devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God is giving Isaiah a mini lesson in prophecy in the beginning of his ministry. Remember, Isaiah is called in the ministry. Isaiah chapter 6 happens in 740 B.C. Because Isaiah chapter 6 begins with a reference to King Uzziah. And King Uzziah is, ends his reign in 640 B.C. Isaiah's writing, Isaiah chapter 64, at least after the invasion of Sennacherib. So that's at least after 700-ish, 40 years later. God calls Isaiah in the ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is caught up in a vision. God is, is instructing Isaiah to be uh, his prophet to his people to proclaim his message. And God says, they're not going to listen to you. Isaiah says, how long will they not listen to me? And God says, they won't listen to you until everything is a wasteland. Until everything is destroyed. That's why God says cities are devastated. They're not going to listen to you until the cities are devastated. Until the cities are without inhabitants. Until the cities and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord has removed men far away, until the place is forsaken. They're not going to listen to you, Isaiah, when you proclaim the truth like I tell you to do, over and over, decade after decade after decade. They're not going to listen, they're not going to listen, they're not going to listen, until finally I bring my rod of discipline. Then they will listen. All of this is a reference to the Babylonian destruction that God was prophesying to Isaiah back in chapter 6 when he calls Isaiah into ministry. It's a reference, this description of the untils, until the cities are devastated, the cities are without inhabitants, utterly, the land is utterly desolate, the, the Lord has removed men far away. All of this is a prophecy about the Babylonian destruction. It's not a prophecy about the Assyrians, even though Isaiah is alive when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes and destroys Judah and surrounds Jerusalem. That happens after God calls Isaiah in in, in 740 B.C. in Isaiah chapter 6. Because Sennacherib, Sennacherib comes 35 years later. Isaiah chapter 6 isn't talking about Sennacherib. Isn't talking about the Assyrians because God slaughters 185,000 of them as they have encircled Jerusalem and planning to lay siege to it. Isaiah chapter 6, with this description of 
this devastation and this destruction and the people being removed from the land is a reference to the Babylonians destroying Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. What they would do in ancient times, this is a relief, a, something that was carved into the rock. What conquered peoples would have done to them was something horrible and, and, and brutal in ancient times. This is what the Babylonians would have done to the Israelites or to the Jews. The term Jew, by the way, comes from Judah. They were the people from Judah. The term Jew doesn't show up until much later in the Scripture. They're called Israelites or Hebrews initially. And then ultimately they're called Jews. By this time, the Babylonians, remember the, remember the kingdoms split, the kingdom of Israel split. Splits the northern kingdom is is. Israel, the southern kingdom, is Judah because it's primarily the land allotment to the tribe of Judah. 722 B.C., the Assyrians come and destroy the the northern kingdom, and the only kingdom that's left is the southern kingdom of Judah, and ultimately they came to be known as the Jews because of Judah. Well, this is what the Babylonians would have done to the Jews when they conquered them. This is what Isaiah is describing in Isaiah chapter 64, at least a century before it happens. What they would do is they would hook the, 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 the conquered, the exiles, to take them along somewhere. Almost, well, in some sense, worse than, than a Batan death march. Right? They would tie them, they would hook them, sometimes they would hook, they would put a hook in the cheek, and they would drag them along as animals. This is an image, and then they would brag about it. This is an image on the screen of what a conquering nation did to a conquered people. This is the imagery of what Isaiah, what the prophet is giving us, what God gave him in Isaiah chapter 6, in terms of a prophecy of finally when they would listen to you, and then what the prophet is explaining in Isaiah chapter 64. Put your finger in Isaiah chapter 6 and turn back to 64 because we're going to flip back and forth for a moment. Look at Isaiah chapter 64 verse 12. Verse 12 reads like this. Will you restrain yourself of these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? There's our phrase, beyond measure. It's the same Hebrew phrase as in verse 9. Of course, Isaiah is not saying to God, don't overstep your bounds in terms of discipline. He's not being presumptuous or even thinking that it's possible that God could sin. Isaiah is saying, please, Lord, do not unleash the full measure of your discipline. We surely deserve it. But he's asking God in a plea of mercy to show compassion to an Israel who's rebellious. The answer to the question of beyond measure, are you going to do your, dis- your discipline beyond me- measure, is no. No. God will not restrain His mercy forever because God has a plan for Israel. You, you still have your thumb in Isaiah chapter 6. Look at that last verse of Isaiah chapter 6 and you're going to see God's plan for Israel. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 13 This is God still speaking to the prophet. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 
even in the face of the brutal Babylonian exile, there is hope. There's hope for the remnant. God always, always preserves a remnant. This phrase here in verse 13 of chapter 6 is this phrase about the oak or the terebinth tree. It's a reference to the promised land. These are, these are references to sturdy trees. An oak is a sturdy tree. A terebinth is a large canopied tree of that area of the world. It says that the tree was felled, an old English word for it was cut down. This refers to the Babylonians destroying Jerusalem and the temple and the last of the Davidic kings being cut off. Remember King Zedekiah, who we studied last time? He was cut off by the Babylonians, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and King Zedekiah, the last three of the vassal kings. They were Davidic kings. They were descendants of David, but they were vassal kings kings to to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar the tree being felled is a reference to to the kingdom of Judah being destroyed by the Babylonians and the the last of the Davidic kings being cut off yet in the midst of destruction and desolation when you think all is lost Israel when you think all hope is abandoned when you think that the brutality of the Babylonians has won, when you think all is lost, God will show up. God will show up and he will break his silence. He will stop restraining himself. He will stop restraining his mercy and he will remove his heavy hand of discipline. That's this language here. Out of the tree stump will come the holy seed. A remnant would return to Jerusalem to rebuild a remnant from Babylon. They would rebuild Jerusalem. They would rebuild the walls under Nehemiah. They would rebuild the temple under Ezra. This is what's meant by a tenth portion in it. Not all of the Jews came back. A portion of the the Jews came back, and they came back in waves. The first remnant, a tenth portion in it, is a tenth portion in the land out of the remnant would come the seed. You see the word seed there, very important word. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. This is the seed. It's not an accident that the seed is called kadosh, the same word that the seraphs declare of Yahweh earlier in chapter 6 when the prophet is caught up in the vision and they say kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies. Well, the seed is called Kadosh because the seed is the same one who was sitting on the throne earlier in Isaiah chapter 6 in the vision that Isaiah sees that the seraphs declare as Kadosh, holy. The seed is coming from the stump. The seed is holy. The seed would not be born in a pagan land. The seed would not be born in Babylon. No, because God would remove his hand of discipline on the Jews, away from the Jews, and he would show mercy to them. This is what Isaiah is asking for in Isaiah chapter 64. How long will you restrain yourself, God, is what Isaiah is asking in in his plea to God in chapter 64. And God says, I will act. Remember, God promised in here in chapter 6 that he would act. Out of the stump, the stump is Judah, is the Davidic 
line of kings that has been felled, that has been cut down by the Babylonians. And then after the Babylonians, you see this language about burning, yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning. Even after the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans still oppressed Israel because they, they, they didn't have a Davidic king. The next time they would have a Davidic king, after Zedekiah, when Nebuchadnezzar killed all of Zedekiah's sons and then gouged out his eyes, the last of the Davidic king, kings, the next time they would have a Davidic king is when the king comes and sits on his throne, Jesus. But here, at the end of chapter 6, God is, is giving a prophecy. First, it's a prophecy of discipline, that the, la- that the people will be removed, the land will be destroyed, the cities will be desolate, it will be a wasteland. And then there's a prophecy in the very last verse, in verse 13, of hope, of hope, because the holy seed will come from the stump. Remember the other prophet who was prophesying at the same time Isaiah's prophesying? Micah. And Micah says in Micah 5.2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the, tri- the, the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for, for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of Olam, from the days of eternity. Isaiah prophesies, Micah prophesies, they both prophesy at the same time. Isaiah chapter 6, God says, no one's going to listen to you, Isaiah. Isaiah says, well, for how long are they not going to listen to me? And God says, until I bring my judgment my rod of discipline upon the people. But even after that, that's the the Babylonian destruction, even after that, when you think all is lost, there is hope because out of the holy stump will come, out of the stump will come the holy seed, a reference to Messiah, the birth of Messiah. Micah prophesying at the same time as Isaiah prophesies about the holy seed coming about Messiah coming, not to be born in the land of the pagans, but to be born in the land of Judah, not very far from Jerusalem itself that was destroyed. The reason why I take you to these different passages, why we get in the car and we go see that part of the Bible and that part of the Bible and that part of the Bible is because I want you to understand the sovereignty of God. I want you to understand the omnipotence of God. God is a joke. 